There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. It was the first Samuel chapter 3, or 2, or 3. Let's go with 3. You should have waited to give me the envelope. <clears throat> God's an idiot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, go down to verse 2 before it gets any worse. Chapter 3, verse 2. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the Lord, were the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called his other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. And Father, that is our prayer this morning. As your servants, we want to hear what you have to say to us. It's just been a joy being able to worship you this morning and fellowship with your saints. Now, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and let it do that work that only your word through the unction of the Holy Spirit can do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Chuck Swindoll shares a story in his book, The Church Awakening. He writes, I wish I could have been there to see it. It was 7.51 on January 12, 2007, L'Enfant Plaza in Washington, D.C. A busy subway station had its usual morning rush of commuters. A young man wearing a baseball cap, T-shirt, and faded jeans entered the plaza and quietly removed his violin from the case. He tossed in some seed money to bait the passerby, then lifted the violin to his chin. The player, Joshua Bell. Some would call him the finest violinist of our generation. His instrument, the rare Gibson X Huberman, handcrafted in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari, 
one of the most coveted and expensive violins in existence. The music, Bell began with Chacon from Bach's Partita No. 2 in D minor, held by some musicians as the greatest piece of music ever composed. The response, you'll be surprised at what was caught on camera. Of the 1,097 commuters who passed by Bell that morning, only seven stopped to listen. Just three days earlier, Bell had played to a sold-out crowd at Boston Symphony Hall, where the average seat cost $100. His earning that morning in the subway, a little over $32. Bell usually earns around $1,000 a minute. Can you imagine that? One of the greatest musicians of our time playing one of the greatest pieces of music in history, and the people just pass by unimpressed. Or perhaps they didn't hear it at all because they had their headphones on listening to the latest of Snoop Doggy Dog or Scooby Dog or whatever his name is. Today we'll be reflecting on how important listening is when it comes to our relationship with God. Because sometimes we may just fool ourselves into thinking that we are listening. A grandchild sitting on her grandfather's lap was listening to the Bible story of Noah's Ark. She asked, were you in the ark, Grandpa? He chuckled and replied, well, no, I wasn't. There was a pause, and the child looked at him quizzically and asked, then how come you weren't drowned? <laughs> now, that grandchild was certainly listening, but she was missing some key points to the story. You know, the same, I think, is often true with us. We often hear what we expect or want to hear. It is called selective listening. Connie sometimes accuses me of this, or I think that's what she says. But sometimes God speaks in the most unexpected ways to the most unexpected of people. Consider our passage this morning. In the temple, there is an experienced professional priest named Eli. He may have had all the seminary degrees, but he didn't hear God's voice. God bypassed him and spoke to a child instead. Look at verse 2 with me. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was. In our last study, we ended with this verse, and the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in, their, in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Samuel was ministering to the Lord when God spoke to him. I want us to understand something this morning. Ministering to the Lord is different than ministering for the Lord. Ministering for the Lord is teaching a lesson, giving a sermon, or helping someone in his name. Ministering to the Lord, on the other hand, is drawing near to him personally and privately. Ministry to the Lord takes place not on a stage, but in the world. Ministry to the Lord is not about what others see us do, but what the Lord alone enjoys as we spend time with him. Ministering to the Lord is the highest calling in any life, and everyone in here can do that. 
Now keep in mind, this is at a time when all around Samuel, the ministry is being devalued and defiled. But Samuel keeps serving unnoticed in the background because although he has not yet met the Lord in a personal way, he realizes that he is serving an audience of one. History is replete with people who do and serve other people, but the reason they do that is for the applause that it brings. Their service or work is actually an exercise in pride and futility. Screen actress Marlene Dietrich even saved recordings of her cabaret ovations with both sides including nothing but the applause. Her biographer tells us she frequently gathered friends together to listen and insisted on playing both sides to Judy Garland, among others. Doesn't that sound like a fun evening, listening to other people clap? She would then tell them the location of the applause by saying, that was in Rio, that was in Cologne, or that night was in Chicago. The love and appreciation of the audience defined her life. Now compare that to the believer who really has only one person to please, the Lord himself. To live before the audience of one truly makes a demonstrable difference in a human life. The character and life of the great 19th century Christian soldier, General Charles Gordon, is a striking example. Winston Churchill described Gordon as a man careless alike of the frowns of men or the smiles of women or comfort or wealth, or fame. Gordon once wrote, The more one sees of life, the more one feels, in order to keep from shipwreck, the necessity of steering by the polar star of God alone, and never pay attention to the favors or smiles of men. He said, Because if God smiles on you, neither the smiles or frowns of men can ever affect you. Now, General Gordon was eventually abandoned and left to die in a siege because of the moral cowardice of Prime Minister William Gladstone and his cabinet in London. But his legendary strength and fortitude of living before an audience of one had prepared him for that. In one account, the cruel King John of Abyssinia threatened him by saying, Do you not know that I could kill you on the spot if I liked? I am perfectly well aware of that, your majesty, Gordon replied. Do so at once, if it is your royal pleasure. I am ready. Stunned, the king said, what? Ready to be killed? Certainly, I'm always ready to die. Then my power has no terrors over you? The king gasped. None whatsoever, Gordon answered, and the king left him amazed. That is the type of service that we should all strive for, the service that is done first and foremost to God, the audience of one. Now, back in verse 2, we've already been told that Eli was very old. One thing those of you who are a little younger in here are going to discover is, as you get older, stuff quits working. And the stuff that does work hurts most of the time, so be nice to us old folk. That has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just me soliciting pity. I'm afraid I'm not above that. Just one more thing for your prayer list. But anyway, 
His failing eyesight was no doubt part of the unwelcome physical deterioration that usually comes with old age. However, the writer has chosen to highlight this particular aspect of Eli's decline immediately after mentioning the fact that in those days there was no widespread vision. I think Eli's physical condition was a reflection of the spiritual reality of that time. Now keep in mind, this was during a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We've already been told of the vile and foul things that Eli's sons were involved in. Eli had closed his eyes to his son's disobedience, and now his own vision is growing darker. We're also told that the lamp of God had not gone out. Now, the lamp of God was a seven-branched golden candlestick that stood in the holy place before the veil to the left of the golden altar of incense. The lamp was a symbol of the light of God's truth given to the world through his people Israel. Now, many different interpretations can be read into this, but what I believe it suggests for us this morning is that the lamp of God, or the presence of God, had not gone out yet, but it was diminishing. God was present. His lamp was lit in the temple, but the closeness to God was so rare that the priest slept in another room. His eyesight dim and visions and words from the Lord rare, if not at all. And beyond that, even two of the priests were desecrating the offerings made to the Lord. Now, the concept of light is very important to the believer. We are told in 1 John 1, 5, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, as a Christian, anytime we have to hide something from others, red flags should pop up and alarm bells should sound in our head. Every area of my life should be scrutinized in the light of God's word. Light is vital to the Christian. I read the other day about a light church, but it's not like you think. You know, in today's calorie-conscious world, how we market everything as light. Light ice cream, light milk, light margarine, you know the stuff I'm referring to. No fun, no fat, no taste. Well, there was a church that marketed itself as a light church. They have this to offer, and I quote, We have reduced everything. Our sermons last 10 minutes. Our worship is done in 30. The tithe is only 7%. We give you your choice of any six commandments to obey instead of all 10. And when we baptize, we only put one arm and one leg under the water. (laughs) Truly to God, I hope they are joking. Look at the second half of verse 3 with me. And while Samuel was lying down, the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. It is believed Samuel was probably about 12 years old when the Lord spoke to him that night as he lay in the tabernacle of the annex where Eli was also sleeping. I think the danger for us is that our schedules can get so loaded up with thing after thing that we don't ever take the time just to stop and listen to God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. 
How often are we still and just take the time to listen to what God might want to say to us? Now, notice that God doesn't speak to Samuel in the busyness of his day, but instead at night, as he is lying down to go to bed, it was when Samuel was still from the busyness of all that he was doing. Now, sometimes in the case of Mount Sinai, God's voice thundered from Moses and all the people to hear. But years later, on that same mountain, Elisha heard a still, small voice. Now, for Moses, it must have been like a cold shower on an early morning when he came off that mountain after having been with God and found his people dancing around that golden calf. For days, he had lived in the presence of holiness itself, and in a sense of God's glory and righteousness, had already now been burned into his spirit. But now he comes down from the mountain, and he finds his people engaged in a drunken orgy. You know he had to be heartbroken. How could this have happened? You know what? We live in a world in which we are consistently and constantly bombarded with all kinds of different voices. It cannot be overstressed the importance of who we listen to. While Moses had been listening to God, his brother Aaron, the high priest of all people, had been listening to the people. And the input the two received was decidedly different. When Moses listened, he received God's revelation of the law of righteousness. When Aaron listened, he heard complaints, wishes, and demands of the people. Moses brought with him the uncompromised standards of heaven, while Aaron caved in to the whims and desires of men. It was all in the listening. Verse 5, please. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. I read this week about a college professor who had a mysterious habit of removing a tennis ball from his jacket pocket as he walked into the lecture hall each morning. He would set the tennis ball on the corner of the podium. And after giving his lecture for the day, he would once again pick up the tennis ball, put it back into his jacket, and leave the room. No one ever understood why he did this until one day a student fell asleep during his lecture. The professor didn't miss a word of his lecture while he walked over to the podium, picked up the tennis ball and threw it, hitting the sleeping student squarely on top of his head. The next day, the professor walked into the room, reached into his jacket, and removed a baseball. No one ever fell asleep the rest of the semester. You know, I wonder if we really come to church expecting to hear God speak to our hearts, or does our mind wander to other things? One sitting during the evening service, someone noticed their child entering joyfully into the singing of the chorus. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Well, his parents were overjoyed at the spirituality of their child. But after listening closer to their five-year-old, they heard these words, Soon and very soon, we're going to Burger King. 
Since we're Cowie Chapel, I've probably lost a lot of you thinking about lunch now. Look at verse 7. Get your mind off a Cracker Barrel. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Now verse 7 says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Notice at this point, Samuel does not know the Lord in a personal way. He hadn't yet heard from the Lord audibly, but he knew about the Lord. Samuel knew that as God, he deserved worship and affection. Samuel didn't know the Lord, but here he is year after year ministering to the Lord. Now that seems a strange thing to say. After all, we've been told that Samuel had been ministering to the Lord, and he was growing in the Lord, and he was enjoying the favor of the Lord. So what does it mean when it says that he didn't know the Lord? And the strangest things about these words, they're almost exactly the same critical words spoken of Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel 2.12. It said there, they did not know the Lord. Now, in their case, that was part of the description of them being corrupt men. The description of Samuel repeats the words of verse 12, but with one significant difference. It says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The ignorance Samuel shared with Hophni and Phinehas had this major difference. They did not know the Lord because they had rejected the knowledge of God by their contempt for God's law. Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Look at verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. Then he and Rose went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me, you crazy old coot. Your Bible may not have that part, but you know that's what Samuel was thinking after the third time. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. In a psychiatrist's waiting room, two patients were having this conversation. One says to the other, why are you here? The second answer is, I'm Napoleon, the emperor of France. The first is curious and asks, how do you know that you're Napoleon? The second responds, God told me. At that point, a patient on the other side of the room shouts out, no, I did not. (laughs) Now, God speaks to us in many different ways. He can speak to us through the words of the Bible. He can speak to us through friends who come along at just the right moment in time. Or he may speak to us as a form or thought that he places into our minds. Now, many people have problems with the concept that God still speaks to people today. And to be fair about it, I have to admit that there is some justification for concern or skepticism. Far too many people make false claims about hearing the voice of God. We hear crazy things like, God spoke to me through my dog and told me to kill every woman with a certain color hair. Or God told me to take my AK-47 assault rifle and go to McDonald's and open up fire. Or almost what I find equally appalling, God told me to tell you that he wants you to send me $100 as a pledge faith donation. And in return, I will send you one of these anointed prayer rags. Truth be told, all kinds of people are making all kinds of claims about God speaking to them these days. That is why we need Holy Spirit discernment and a working knowledge of God's Word so that we will not be deceived. Verse 9, Therefore Eli said to Samuel, 
Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down and lay down at his place. One thing we must consider is, Eli must have realized that he was being judged by God, since God had now bypassed him and spoke directly to the boy Samuel. But to Eli's credit, he does give Samuel the correct advice in what to do. We should treat prayer for what it is. It is a two-way conversation with God, and learn to be quiet enough after we pray to allow God to speak to our hearts. Nicky Gumbel, in his book, Questions of Life, compares it to a visit that he goes to the doctor when he writes, Suppose I go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I have a number of problems. I have a problem of fungus growing under my toenails. My eyes itch. I need a flu shot. I have a very bad backache and I also have tennis elbow. Then having gone through my list of complaints, I look at my watch and say, Goodness me, time is getting on. Well, I must be off. Thanks very much for listening. The doctor might want to say, Hang on a second. Why don't you listen to me? Gumbel then adds his penetrating insight. If whenever we pray, we only speak to God and never take time to listen, we make that same mistake. It is only by listening that we can receive the guidance that we need. Philip Yancey tells a story of his friend who went swimming in a large lake at dusk. And as he was paddling at a leisurely place about 100 yards offshore, a freak evening fog rolled in across the water. Suddenly, he could see nothing. No horizon, no landmarks, no objects or lights on the shore. Because the fog had diffused all light, he could not even make out the direction of the setting sun. Yancey then tells about how his friend splashed around in absolute panic. He would start off in one direction, lose confidence, and then turn 90 degrees to the right or to the left. It made no difference which way he turned. He could feel his heart racing uncontrollably. He would stop and float trying to conserve energy and force himself to breathe slower. Then he would strike blindly out once again. At last he heard a faint voice calling from the shore. He pointed his body to that sound and followed it to safety. You know, just like that, our natural instinct is busyness. Our natural spiritual instinct is noise and talking instead of listening. Verse 10, Now the Lord came and stood and called at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Now, back in verse 9, Eli told Samuel to respond to the voice with these words, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. But here in verse 10, Samuel responds with, Speak, for your servant hears. He left out the word, Lord. Why? Well, we know that Samuel didn't yet have a personal knowledge of the Lord, so he couldn't know for sure whose voice it was that had spoken to him. And perhaps he was just being careful not to accept it as the voice of Jehovah until he had a way to be sure. But we will see that immediately after this, Samuel will be, in New Testament terms, will definitely be saved. And from this night on, he will never again doubt the voice of God. If you are a believer this morning, you know that voice. It's probably not audible, as in Samuel's case, 
But Jesus made this abundantly clear when he said in John 10:27, My sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Once Jesus calls you by name, you will never forget that voice. It is in John chapter 20 that we find Mary speaking to who she thinks is the gardener, but in actuality it is the resurrected Christ. All that changes when Jesus looks into her eyes and says but one word, Mary. No one ever said her name that way. And in a flash she responds, Rabboni. She falls at his feet, clinging to never let him go. Now Mary will leave the garden a different woman because she now knows that voice. One writer said, Her sorrow is vanquished as thoroughly as a darkness in a sun-drenched room. Her grief is now a memory, a reminder of her failure to recognize her master's voice. But now her beloved who was dead is now alive and knows her by name. So the question this morning isn't, does the Lord still speak? The question is, are we listening to it or do we miss the opportunity to respond to it? And there are a few things in life worse than a missed opportunity. In 1973, Gary Kildall wrote the first popular operating system for personal computers named CPM. According to writer Philip Fiorni, IBM approached Kildall in 1980 about developing the operating systems for IBM PCs. But Kildall snubbed the IBM officials at a crucial meeting, according to author Paul Carroll. The day IBM came calling for this meeting, he chose to fly his new airplane instead. Well, the frustrated IBM executives turned instead to a man named Bill Gates, founder of a small company at that time called Microsoft and his operating system named MS-DOS. Fourteen years after that day, Bill Gates was worth more than $8 billion. Of Kilda, who has since died, author Paul Carroll says, he was a smart guy, who didn't realize how big his operating system could have become. And in a similar way, people often don't realize how big God's kingdom will someday become. God comes calling with the offer of a lifetime for our life to have purpose and meaning, and yet we find other things to do. But make no mistake about it. Learning to hear God's voice involves time and effort to hear him speak. In his book, Directions, author James Hamilton shares this insight about listening to God. He says, before refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, and a tightly fitted door. In winter, when the streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut, hard the ice houses, and covered with sawdust. Often the ice would last well into the summer. During those times one day, a man lost a very valuable watch while working in the ice house. He searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but he couldn't find it. His fellow workers also helped him look, but their efforts, too, proved futile. But then a small boy who heard about the fruitless search slipped into the ice house during the noon lunch hour and soon emerged with the watch. Amazed, the men asked him how he found it. I closed the door, the boy replied. Then I laid down the sawdust and kept very still. Soon I heard the watch ticking. 
So in closing, the question is not whether or not God is speaking, but whether are we going to be still enough and quiet enough to listen to him. Are we setting aside the noise and clamor and the things of this life with the intense focus on listening to the voice of God? I pray that each of us decides this morning to make hearing God's voice the priority of our lives. And Lord, we do pray that. We want to know your voice, or we want to hear that voice behind us like it says in Isaiah. It says, when we come to the right or to the left, there will be a voice behind us that says, this is the way, walk in it. That's the kind of guidance that we need in this world, Lord. It is a minefield of sin and trouble, and we can't do it on our own. We want to walk in your spirit, follow your voice, and do things your way. Make that true. Burn that into our spirits this morning, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.